This podcast was recorded at the Battle of Ideas Festival at the Barbican in London. Okay, guys, welcome to this session. It's part of the Strand School Fights, Private Education, Public Harm, question mark. This session, like the others in the Strand, supported by the TES and the Institute of Ideas Education Forum. My name's Kevin Rooney. I'm a uh, head of social science in a, a school in Hertfordshire. I'm a mad Celtic supporter. I'm a member of the Institute of Ideas Education Forum. And that's enough about me. So... The way it's going to work, each speaker will speak for five minutes, a maximum of seven, and I'll be absolutely ruthless with the time. Then I might ask them a wee question or two, and then it's over to you, the audience, for questions, and you can make points as well. Don't let the speakers dominate the whole discussion. On my left is my fellow countryman, my fellow Irishman, James Conroy, who's Dean uh, for European Engagement and Professor of Philosophical and Religious Education at the University of Glasgow. And on my far left, possibly in more ways than one, is my friend and prolific sort of writer on education, Fiona Miller, uh, who's a columnist for The Guardian and co-founder of Local Schools Network. And on me right, I don't know in more ways than one or not, is Dave Perks, uh, principal of East London Science School, author of What is Science Education For? and co-author um, with Sir Richard Sykes, The Review of School Examinations and the Defence of Subject-Based Education. Dave has just opened uh, a free school in East London, literally this year after a couple of years of hard draft and work, so we might weave that into the discussion somewhere. And on me right, Martin Stephen, Director of Education for GEMS UK, and a former high master of St Paul's School. I think what we're talking, is it 17 or 18 books that you've actually authored there, Martin? 19 books. Do you want to shout out what the latest book is? It's so boring, I wouldn't dare. Uh, you're, so, you're so modest. Okay. No, so, just so truthful. Oh, he will, he will, he will. Guys, let me just speak for one minute. So I, this was my idea to have this debate. And I don't know if this debate about private education goes up a cul-de-sac. I actually don't know if we can break new ground and shed a bit of light on this discussion, because a lot of people are pretty fixed in their position. And I'm a chair, but that doesn't mean that I'm neutral. I'm going to be a very, very impartial chair, but I've got strong feelings and opinions on this. So let me just set the discussion up really quickly, as fairly as I can. 7% of private school pupils win 50% of Oxbridge places. They then leave Oxbridge and go on and pretty much dominate the higher echelons of law, medicine, media, the arts, politics, etc. Over 50% of our current cabinet are from private schools. That's 7% of schools. Now, the question is, on what basis do you defend this? I mean, let's just cut to the chase. The problem seems to be that there is a hell of a lot of inequality here, and that could be considered a problem. On the other side of the fence, you might turn around and say that this is an indictment on the poor state of state education, the fact that parents feel a need to send their kids to private schools. And the last thing that I want to throw out just before we start is a real dilemma that I have personally, and it's to do with the concepts of equality and freedom. I believe in equality passionately, but I absolutely believe in freedom. So where should I situate myself on this debate and discussion about private schools? I think without further ado, 
we'll get our speakers to give us their take on this discussion and see if they can advance the debate forward any more. So without further ado, it's over to yourself, Martin. I would start by saying that independent schools should not exist. And yes, Mr Paxman, that is exactly what I said. It is madness for parents to pay for exceedingly large sums for a service that the state is committed to providing free of charge for 13 years of a child's life. That should lead us on to the question of why do the parents pay? The answer, in my case, was that my six-year-old son, sent to a local state private school in all good faith, was coming home every day bruised to bits, including once being hospitalised. He was being beaten up for having the wrong accent. It wasn't actually his fault. Our independent sector exists because too many parents are not happy with what is on offer for free from the state sector. And the title of this debate was, I think, Public Harm. You've got to really define where the harm is. If you have a migraine, is the harm with the aspirin that helps allay the pain, or is it with the illness itself? Independent schools are merely the aspirin some of our parents use. They're not the harm. The harm is what is wrong with our state sector. And the problem with this debate is it diverts attention away from where the real debate should be. You have a state sector that is really firing on all four cylinders. Independent schools cease to exist overnight. A recent OECD survey showed our children were some of the worst educated in any industrialised nation. That same organisation listed the UK's independent schools as the best schools in the world. So is it a good idea to reform a system that everybody believes is in need of reform by starting off by destroying the highest achieving schools in it? It seems a bit illogical. If you do away with independent schools, you'd close half the STEM departments in our leading universities overnight. But let's ask the other obvious question. If you fed 7% of children back to their local state school, is it going to be a magic wand of those schools and the whole maintained state education system going to surge upwards? Oh, yeah? Well, when we sent my 14-year-old son to a Manchester inner-city comprehensive... He didn't work any magic on it, but it did some significant black magic on him. We can't make our children the soldiers in this battle of ideas. There are too many child soldiers in the world. The adults do the fighting. We hand the victory to our children to enjoy. And we cannot use our children to make things happen. As for that 7%, all they would do is what the chattering classes have always done. They would colonise their local school. These children wouldn't go to disadvantaged inner-city schools. Their parents would simply pay to move house. Enemies of independent schools have often had the chance themselves to move a house, by the way, into the area of an outstanding school. And so many of the people I sit on platforms with who talk down independent sectors, schools, have children at Camden Girls School, Holland Park, Hills Road, Sixth Form College in Cambridge. And yeah, I'm pretty sure if my child was at all of those schools, 
I could lecture everybody else on how good the state school sector is. I'm not sure it would mean much to most of the parents in the Newham School, of which I am a governor. The fact is there are two ways to gain an independent or privileged education for your child. One is to pay fees. You can spend just as much money as a recent survey used to the same effect, buy a new house and move into an area where there's an outstanding state school. Why is one so wrong, yet one so acceptable? Why is it wrong to pay independent school fees, but not at all wrong to spend the money instead of on your children, on extraordinary holidays, on amazing cars, or indeed on a house move? I don't understand. And as for privilege, well, should I be ashamed as I'm frequently asked to be, when I gave most of my evenings and weekends over 10 years to a campaign that raised over £13 million for the Manchester Grammar School. And I'm not joking if I say nearly every pound had my blood on it, at least it had my sweat and toil on it. And that money allowed 300 boys to attend that school on free or heavily assisted places, and still does. Should I feel ashamed when I've been speaking at an Oxford Union debate, one of those where the motion is all those who've ever been within 100 miles of an independent school should be hung, drawn, quartered and publicly castrated, preferably in front of their children? Uh, well, that's a slight exaggeration, but it was something like that. And there's running footfalls behind me and a young man... 20, 25-year-old with a hoodie, screeches to a halt, pulls his hoodie off. I'm walking with the Students' Union for a drink. And this, this young man pulls his hoodie off and says, you're Dr. Stephen, aren't you? I was one of the first people to go to Manchester Grammar School, one of your free places. I got a first, and I'm off to Harvard now to do a PhD. You changed my life. Thank you very much, and runs off. I don't feel ashamed about that. I had tears in my eyes, actually, and I'm very proud of those tears. And I'll tell you one thing, that young man would not have got to Oxford or to Harvard from the state school he attended. There's so much more that could be said, but I won't. What I'll say is this, independent schools are like alcohol. They're a great asset if used wisely, a great danger if not. Why on earth aren't we integrating the strength of those schools into a combined public and private education sector as we integrate public and private into the economy and using those schools instead of simply damning them for doing what we know our state schools should be doing as well. Fiona. Thank you very much. Well, I'd like to respond to some of those points, but hopefully I'm conscious of my five to seven minutes. So I'm going to try and come back to them in the questions later. It is quite clear that fee-charging schools are very good for some people. I wouldn't dispute that. If you go to Eton, you can pay £30,000 a year, which is above the average income. Uh, you get a, a teaching ratio of eight pupils to one teacher, and the average in the state sector is about 26 to one teacher. You can play polo, enjoy boating lakes, recording studios, a fully equipped theatre. At my local London day schools, the fees are about £18,000 a year, which is three times the funding per pupil that the, children, the schools my children went to received. And it's a similar story across a range of other private schools. Almost, um, they're less exclusive some, but essentially the message is the same, that if you can afford to pay a lot, you can attempt to buy your children a fast track into the best universities and a head start in life. And in fact, I think it's a bit more, less straightforward than Martin suggests, because 
all the evidence from the OECD suggests that when you strip out social class background, the results for children in state schools are better than they are in private schools. And so children from similar backgrounds in good state schools can do just as well. And my children feel privileged to have been to their local state schools. I don't, don't recognise the stereotype that Martin describes. So some people may be wasting their money. And there are also some quite bad fee-charging fee schools. I mean, the best of the state schools are always, the, the private schools are always used to typify the entire sector, and the worst of the state sector is always used to damn everybody else. And this is really a product of key figures in the media who have a vested interest in talking down a system that they've rejected for their own children. But just to get back to the point, while private schools may have benefits for their customers, I think we can establish beyond doubt that they're bad for society. Now, I've noticed a very interesting new marketing development in the fee-charging sector, which is to claim that their schools are, in fact, diverse, inclusive communities. In fact, some are now claiming to be more inclusive than many state schools, which may be a case of protesting too much. But I notice that none of the evidence for this is ever produced. I mean, how many children in the fee-charging sector are uh, recipients of the pupil premium, for example? At what income level are most bursaries set? And how many are full bursaries? The truth is we don't know any of this information on a school-by-school -school basis. And as I suggested in The Guardian recently, it should be a statutory requirement for the independent schools to publish this information on their websites if they are to continue to benefit from charitable status. In fact, all the evidence points in the opposite direction to the inclusion argument, as the head of the King's School, Ely, let the cat out of the bag recently when he said that private school fees are now pri pricing middle-class parents out of the market. And in another very revealing interview, a representative of the Association of governing bodies of independent schools explained to the Third Sector magazine that private schools had to be run as a business. The governors are directors of a company, he explained, and as such, their principal responsibility is to maintain the school as a viable concern. Well, if the middle-class parents are priced out of this competitive business, what chance is there for a family on a low income? The truth is that the fees are rocketing beyond the means of the average family. Entry is linked to selective tests, so very unlikely to benefit the really disaffected and poor, and like the children from the chaotic households who don't have breakfast in the morning, don't have a bed to sleep in, the children whose parents wouldn't even know to where to find a private tutor, even if they had the money to pay for one, children in care, children with emotional and behavioural difficulties. So it's nonsense to claim that fee-charging schools are inclusive. They are exclusive, and they're exclusive deliberately so, and that is bad for society. So I would, I would call this debate private gain, public pain. As Anthony Seldon, the head teacher of Wellington, explained, schools like his are contributing to a form of social apartheid. And in a variation on the same theme, the head of City of London School, who was brought up in South Africa, I believe, told me that he thought that in the capital it's a form of racial apartheid. And this goes to the very heart of why private schools are bad for society and cost the taxpayer. They act as a break on social cohesion and social mobility. They cream off able and aspirant uh, students from the state system and reduce every other child's chance of being educated in a real comprehensive school. And back to the OECD again, comprehensive education is still internationally acknowledged to be the best route for high outcomes for all children rather than a sim simply an affluent few. But above all, uh, fee-charging schools divide children by race, class and family income at a time when more than ever we need to be building bridges between those groups. We're facing huge challenges in society with the gap between the rich and the poor growing ever wider. People are facing unemployment, cuts in public spending, pay freezes, making ends meet is very difficult for many families, yet they see those with advantage of money continuing to, to reap disproportionate rewards. And I don't think we should underestimate the resentment that that breeds. 
Now, no one's pretending that schools on their own can override huge inequalities in society, but schools can create powerful bonds. Schools can help to overcome prejudice and, about, and help to overcome lazy assumptions about race, about class, about ethnic background. And they can act as a mirror to the sort of society that people like me would like to see, one in which all children and young people can share their common humanity rather than see each other as rich or poor, chavs or snobs, with the inevitable ill will that that breeds. So I think the simplest way to judge any society is through its education system. Does it offer an equal chance to all, or does it merely con confirm deprivation and privilege? And I think one that divides our children so starkly according to their background is one that's failing. One that allows a tiny but powerful elite to profit at the expense of the rest can only be bad for society. So it's private gain, public pain. Thank you very much. Thanks. That's brilliant. We have a clear debate on our hands. So, Dave, what are you going to bring to this? Okay. Um, so in terms of the way I look at it, um, we're kind of in danger of saying uh, in education, a bit like you are what you eat, you are the school you went to, and that's it. So there's no point in doing anything else. If you didn't go to the right school, you had it. But if that's the case, I was educated in ex-grammar school a community comprehensive, a large state school in South Africa during apartheid, and I also went to Magdalene College, Oxford. So that must mean I'm a racist elitist to believe some are born clever than others or not. <laughs> no, I don't, actually. So there you go. So in other words, if we can just get past that, then what's the problem? Well, the problem is that you really want to get access to a good education. That's it. It's not much more than that. So how do you do it? Ah, that is a problem. Um, so I, I've just founded and set up a, a free school in East London, which has, as far as we know, 40% free school meals, which is above the norm average, the same borough that your school, your governor office is in. And we don't select on ability or aptitude, and yet we aspire to offer what you might call a public school education for common people. And yes, we do want to send them to Oxford and Cambridge. Um, and someone's got to do that in East London because there aren't many options, uh, if that's what you want. But that's the point. The school system as it exists, the state school system as it exists, has failed. And that's it. It doesn't work. So if you are middle class and aspirant, you leave. That's your option. You leave or you fight. You fight very, very hard. So you might go to your local comprehensive, but it's not any old local comprehensive. It won't be one of the majority of comprehensives in, in the boroughs that we uh, work with. It'll be one of two schools, probably, and if you can't get in there, you will leave. If you can, you will involve yourself in every last bit of that school's life and education for your child, insisting that your child deserves the best part of that education. And what you end up with is a school within a school, a school where privileged people from the local area make sure that their children are in the extension set as regards to the middle or upper or whatever other sets it is, and they have an entirely different education to any other child in the school. And that's the way that good schools in good state schools, good comprehensive schools in London work. They do not run mixed ability teaching across the whole breadth and, uh, of abilities in, in, in terms of the intake they take in. That would be a disaster. And when it has happened, when schools have switched that way, as I, I used to work in south-west London uh, in a very good uh, comprehensive there, which had that set up, uh, and the local one uh, lost their head teacher who used to try and get people to study history at Oxford. It was replaced by somebody who, out of the sort of Blairite mould, a systems person. Within five years, the school had collapsed down to an intake of 20 pupils and is about to be shut because it just parents don't want it. They flee from that kind of thing. So if you are having to fight, you will do anything 
to fight for the education uh, that you aspire to for your, for your child. And that will mean that you will pay for tuition, loads of it. So private tuition is a, a, a massive part of the education of most pupils uh, as they go through state schooling and private schooling as well, but state schooling in particular, if you want to guarantee they get the A-levels they need to get into university, that's just part of it. So you can't say the answer is go to your local school. It just doesn't work because you end up having to take over your local school and run it the way you want to. Or find another answer. And the other answer would be flee outside of London, go to Essex and find a grammar school and live near there and try and get into that one. And So in other words, the basic idea that we can sort of say it's state versus independent, state versus private, just doesn't make it make sense. And, you know, on the uh, sort of side of the public schools in London, Fiona's right in that sense that the fees have rocketed uh, foreign parents are now coming in and taking over those schools and English middle class people can't get a look in in, in those schools at all so where do you go then? So this, the system is uh, in that respect out of control but what's more than that and what stands beyond, above and beyond that is the quality of education that is on offer and this is where you get back to your question the equality question so the political argument is that we need to justify this in terms of uh, aspiring to an equality of opportunity or however else it's phrased. That means, in the bottom sort of argument, that we think that the education we offer has to give access to everybody or it's elitist. That means that knowledge is a problem because knowledge is elitist. Therefore, schools and the curriculum that they run is drifting further and further away from aspiring to actually teach anything that you could call knowledge. As a result, they are making them equal, but equal right down, bottoming out the content that education offers. And that's the answer. But that's not good enough. It's absolutely not good enough at all. It's a disaster for education. So even the best state schools are fighting constantly to try and hold standards up. And they, they can't do it. So that's why I think that the answer has to be to say that the state has failed and that what we need to do is look to any, any suggestion that will come up with a, a way of fighting for a decent education, whether that's private, public, independent, free school, I don't care who it is, but schools that can actually stand up for actually teaching a curriculum that will educate the pupils they have within them, they're the ones that I would back. So I don't actually think it is a question of uh, private or fee-paying versus state. It's about who actually values knowledge and who doesn't. James? Uh, thank you very much. I find myself, uh, as, as an academic, uh, characteristically agreeing and disagreeing with everyone simultaneously. Um, and it's going to get worse from here on in. Um, Look, there, uh, there are clear imperatives in a liberal democratic polity to secure certain kinds of freedoms. And, and to ensure that the things that we claim are rights are authentically rights. Lots of people talk about rights as if there were lots and lots and lots of rights that are somehow, you know, ontologically endowed, that they somehow come from the very fact of being in the universe. This is nonsense on stilts, of course. But then there are also, in a liberal democratic polity, rights and imperatives to secure the kind of society that we want. The first imperative around people's freedom means that we shouldn't ban private education. Citizens should be free to send their children to those institutions that are likely to secure for them certain kinds of social, moral and cultural goods. 
After all, I can't remember when I had my three children with my wife. I, I didn't think, oh, well, I hope to have children so that the state can take an advantage from them. Or I'm having children so that the state can bring them up. Or I can have children so that the state will make decisions about them. Of course, parents don't do that. And so it's, there are prior rights that parents have over the education of their children. It's unthinkable that the Liberal state could or should impede such a foundational right. Of course, individual parents, most especially middle-class parents, will want to secure positional advantage for their children. And it's for that reason that the second imperative comes into play, securing the kind of society that we want to have, that we want to live in. The exercise of law offers an interesting kind of parallel for us. You know, if someone hurt one of my children, I would have no hesitation in taking their head off with a machete. That's why we have the law, to stop people like me taking their head off with a machete. Um, Personal preferences have to be mediated. And where they're likely to disturb the modest social equilibrium we enjoy, the state through the law has to intervene to ensure both justice and that all are treated equally. Education is no different in that respect from the law. The right to exercise the freedom of choice with respect to one's own children upbringing has to be ameliorated by the state where such choices are likely to radically disturb social equilibrium. And here I agree with Fiona. The social equilibrium is an extraordinarily fragile state at the moment. And it is and has been very clear for some time that the rights to choose certain kinds of schooling have some deleterious effects on social equilibrium. But it would be foolish and naive in equal measure to blame all this on the existence of private education. If we didn't have it, we would certainly invent some alternative. After all, I grew up in Northern Ireland. I went to a grammar school. Let me tell you about Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland has the most unequal education system in Britain. If you live in South Belfast, you're 95% certain to pass the 11 plus and go to a grammar school. If you live in West Belfast, you're 20%. In Scotland, where we have much lower incidence, where where I live and teach now, um, we have much lower incidence of private education. But the education gap is still huge in Scotland. It's a postcode gap. We have some of the most disaffected youngsters in Britain, not only in Britain, in Europe, and some of the worst social problems in Europe. But we have pretty much an entirely comprehensive education system. And how, do, how does Northern Ireland pull this off? By having a grammar school system that is historically supported, drawn from, and provides a carefully regulated conduit for the middle classes. Scotland is no different. You know, a very modest number of, of, of private schools, 110, 30,000 students, 4.6% of the population. Very little antagonism in Scotland, interestingly, between public and private schooling. Let me suggest the real battle is not between public and private school, at least not simpliciter. It's between institutions free to engage in something approximating to an education as opposed to those who who are working in institutions manufactured as containment centres. Private schools generally, though not universally, offer a better experience, not just because they are middle or, in many cases, upper middle class, but also because they are free from much government interference. Scotland prima facie has a more benign political environment, but its regulatory regimes are hardly less any laborious and mind-achingly dull for teacher and student alike. I have a daughter who just started in, in her first year teaching in a primary school in the West Central Belt, and what she has to do is nothing short of criminal. Consequently, private schools are more freed up to cultivate the social capital so prized by the middle and upper middle classes. Perhaps most tellingly, there's a sharp difference in what receives attention in the different sectors. Private schools still largely run into the idea of propositional knowledge. 
Not propositional knowledge like Michael Gove and Cummings and Hirsch conceive it. More subtle forms of propositional knowledge, knowledge about the world. These are often dismissed by colleagues in the public sector as middle-class conceits. And let me give you a quick example. When there was a discussion, Michael Gove uh, was talking about reintroducing classical languages. All the unions were up in arms about how awful this was. When I was Dean of Education at Glasgow, I introduced Latin, reintroduced Latin for primary school teachers. It was the most popular course in the, the, the faculty. And the Times did a huge spread on it, and they asked the students why, and they said, the first time I ever understood the English language. I resent the fact that we have students who are coming in with A's and B's, and it's very hard to get into teaching in Scotland, and they still don't know what the structure of the English language is. And these, these are often dismissed by colleagues in the public sector, as I say, as middle-class conceits. But importantly, in the shift from production to consumption economies, knowledge becomes a tradable asset, and the middle classes have appropriated it. Just as Britain as a nation competes in an OECD-driven economy, so now there's an increasing internal market in knowledge production and consumption. Keeping ahead has become ever more important. This leads to premiums all around for parents, for students, for teachers who work in the private sector. Fiona's listed some of the advantages the private sector has, but they're far bigger than that. Almost 40% of those in private sector education were themselves privately educated, and about 90% of them come out of strong, standard, middle-class stock. They're more likely to have higher degrees, they're more likely uh, to have a first or an upper second, and more likely to be able to teach maths and sciences. There's a pay premium, there are better working conditions, and don't take my word, there's a very interesting LSE report on this. These class affiliations play out in rewards and retention. Hence, as conditions of service appear to decline in the public sector, there are difficulties in retention not found in the private sector. They also play out in an enhanced account and attachment to this notion of propositional knowledge. And all of this points in a quite different direction to charter schools, to baseline testing and the plethora of madcap, lunatic interventions that have bedeviled state schools. It points to rethinking civic resource allocation, shifting the balance much further in favour of the most disadvantaged. It points to reducing government control of the curriculum and assessment. It points to many of those on the centre-left reappraising their obeisance to modish social knowledge. It points to significant salary differentials in favour of those wishing to teach in our most challenging spaces. It does not, however, appoint to the abolition of private schools, rather to the freedom, resource and expertise to serve the most needy. And a real withdrawal from government. If you want small government, let's try an experiment. Let's begin to dismantle most of the most corrosive organisational cultures that I've ever experienced and reinvigorate professional trust. Thanks very much, James. I'm, I'm actually genuinely torn here, which is not like me. Anybody who knows me knows I tend to be quite uh, opinionated. Look, I've, I've got all of these questions that I blew Peter style prepared, um, which I'm not going to ask now, because let me just take one question. We'll see where it goes, and I might ask another, or I might go out to the floor. It's something you said, Dave, um, I wasn't thinking about until you mentioned it, and you almost said it in such a way that it wasn't one of your core points, but you, you sort of said it almost in passing. You said something along the lines of, some people think you are the school that you went to and you said no that's not the case effectively and you, you accused them of uh, determinism and I want to ask the panel a question 
And it's linked to the fact that if you've been reading the Institute of Ideas stuff, one of the key themes over the last while has been the problem of determinism within education, neuroscience, biological determinism, etc., etc., etc. And you're sort of, we'll start with you, Dave, and then we'll go around the, the panel. You're sort of poo-pooing that. And I sort of am very sympathetic to the Institute of Ideas stuff on there's, there's a problem with determinism at the moment. But when it comes to private education, even though that sounds like a good line that you've said, would you not say that actually, even though you can point to a few people that made it up the ladder from comprehensives, etc., that the bottom line is that it's still the case that, you know, if you get a private school education, you're more likely to do the business and get to Oxbridge, etc. So I just want you effectively to draw out a wee bit this point that you're saying, and I want to see if the panelists agree with you or not. Well, there are, the Sutton Trust produced a report in 2011 that said there are five good schools in the country that can get pupils into Oxbridge and the rest are, are not even as good as them put together, which basically says there's five good schools in the country, in effect. So you can take it that way, but that doesn't mean that it's you know, public, private, state or whatever. It means there are five very good schools, four are sort of independent and one's a, a comprehensive in name at least, State School in Cambridge, he used to run one of the good ones as well. And uh, so, in, in other words, what have they got? What makes them successful? That's, that's a different question. Okay, That's not like saying you walk through the door of any independent school, you're going to walk into Oxford and Cambridge. That's not true. Especially now, as uh, it's pointed out, that uh, independent schools are actually being uh, argued against consistently in terms of their ability to get people in and their, their barriers being put in the way, targets and all the rest of it being set out to stop them winning that battle, OK? But the point I was getting at was that you are you. The education you get helps make you, yes, but it, it isn't equal to you. That's different. Now, you can default back to it, by all means, if that's the way that things work, you can sort of blame the education you had as that that's what you are. But I think we're a bit better than that, aren't we? I mean, that's the point. OK, OK. Fiona, um, do you, what do you think about that point? I've slightly lost track of the question. Could you say it in English? Uh, well, it's, it's, you know, it's tricky to, to sort of summarise it too quickly, but the point is there's a whole debate about determinism going on at the moment around the Institute of Ideas, and part of it is saying that um, people are effectively making excuses for why some people fail or succeed, that these things are already predetermined. And what people would say in response to that is actually you make of your own life what you will. It's up to you. Stop making excuses. You can do it sort of thing. And the, the way I was, why I was asking Dave the question was I was effectively trying to suggest that he's just trying to use a clever device to get out of the fact that 50% of Oxbridge people end up at 50% of private, sorry, 50% of Oxbridge places are filled by 7% of the private schools. So the bottom line is schools largely play a huge impact in shaping you. Does that make sense or not? Yeah, but the thing is, the access to Oxford and Cambridge is only one indicator of success. We're talking here as if it's the only indicator of success. Some people may not want to go to Oxford and Cambridge, incidentally. Um, so I think, I think we need to widen the argument out, really, and say what is it that people want to get out of their lives. And there are many different routes you can, get, you can take to get that. I think it's a mixture. It's a mixture of you know, genetics, resilience, home upbringing, family. You actually say genetics then? 
Yeah, I think there's a, it's a mixture of a, the way people develop is a mixture of number, a number of different factors. But I think it's I think it's too simplistic to say it's an either or debate because it isn't. It's very complicated. You can get two children in the same family, one of whom has more resi resilience than another, is better equipped to do the things that Kevin was saying in terms of making their way in the world than another child. So I just don't think it's a straightforward. I think it's a bit of a redundant debate. What we've got to do is put in place the circumstances for every child to make the, 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 the best out of their lives, really. And that's what this debate is about. And if you have a system where some people can buy that advantage. And remember, the private schools have more money. I mean, that's just the bottom line. They have more money, they have more resources, they have more facilities. You know, until we equalise that, we're never going to really know what the potential is in the state sector. I would like to see a situation where the state schools have the same income as the independent sector, and the independent sector has to take in the same children that state schools have to educate. Then we'll look at the outcomes and see what happens. Okay, Martin. Uh, I'm not a great expert on the determinist argument, but for just as a bit of research information, uh, I'm now, I think, a terribly boring establishment figure. Um, I was expelled from my public school at 14 for leading a hunger strike. Uh, <laughs> and expelled again at 16 for being the credible crime of being seen talking to village girls. And I, I think had that actually been true, we'd have spent the rest of my life rather regretting that it was only talking, you know, better be hung, better be hung for a sheep than a lamb, really. Um, uh, my problem was that I had an identity crisis when I was 14. I thought I was Che Guevara. Um, surprisingly, I still do, actually. Uh, on a serious point, yes, it is true I was lucky enough to lead one of the top five schools in getting people into these totally meaningless aspirational universities. Actually, there's a very simple reason, and I wish to God people who talk about this would come and see those schools. They're not shy about letting people see around. What was fascinating was that what got so many boys from St. Paul's into Oxford and Cambridge wasn't class, wasn't money, actually. Yes, it was brains, that goes without saying. But lots of people have those. What it was was the belief that they could do it. What was quite extraordinary was when we brought in state school children free of charge from disadvantaged local schools and persuaded them they could do it, they did brilliantly too. What I want to know is what are we talking like this about? Why aren't we doing more schemes like that? Just a follow-up question before I go to James. Um, so somehow the private schools sort of like had a magic wand, did they, to the, the state school pupils and give them the belief that they could do it? Draw that out for me. What is the belief? Why is that not happening? How, how, how are private schools, excuse me, able to instill that in the state school pupils? It, it's a simple fact that I suppose it's as simple as role model. Um, we used to ethnically match... Uh, children from disadvantaged schools and we used to say uh, in the main look here I am I'm an 18 year old I'm actually just like you I too support Arsenal but not Celtic I can't talk I support you have Wednesday um, uh, uh, I am actually just the same as you are and to me aspiring to go to a top university is normal and actually, that was the trick. Yeah, we gave them hours of teaching and all the rest of it, but actually the analogy I would use was lifting the supermarket trolley over the curb. It's a small step, 
Um, but it's all in the mind. Okay. And we found this up in Manchester too. The problem with our state schools, or the ones that we dealt with, was that they didn't actually create the belief that it could be done or the desire that it was a good thing to do it. Okay, Martin. Uh, James, you get the last word, and then I'm going to go out to the audience. I think uh, the, the question of, of genetics is utterly odious. Cummings wrote his final um, uh, report to Michael Gove suggesting that it's all basically genetic. This, of course, really helps those who want to put forward a case that actually you can do nothing about the great unwashed. Harry Burns, the, the chief medical officer in Scotland, has uh, conducted over the very many years a very interesting analysis of morbidity and ill health in West Central Scotland and its educational and all the social impacts. And he will argue that it is genetic. There are lots of neurophysiological firings that are not working, but they have been switched off. And his argument is that the only way to switch them off is not by drilling holes in people's heads, which I think someone like Cummings would probably like, and you know, shoving in a tickling stick and agitating bits of the brain. It's actually social and psychological. And we have underserved the most deprived children for generations. My, my colleague Andy Furlong at the University of Glasgow has done really interesting work on exploding the myth that parents don't want parents who are second and third generation unemployed don't want their children to be employed. They don't have the strategies, the middle classes appropriate all the freaking strategies. <coughs> Brilliant. And uh, you know what? I'm ridiculously defensive about throwing in the question about determinism and genetics in case we've thrown the discussion off on a tangent. So feel free to ignore that if you want. We're going to broaden the discussion out. It might go in all sorts of directions, but let's see what happens. Hi. Um, I come to this as a person who's been educated in the state system my entire life. And yes, I did just finish at Hills Road Sixth Form College, so I do recognise that I'm in a very unique position. However, my secondary and primary schools were actually underperforming, so I would say that I have kind of a broad perspective on it. I would put it to you that, in my opinion, the state schools will never stop failing, as you somewhat simplistically put it, if actually the kids of the richest and the most elite of people are always completely taken out of the system. And furthermore, also the point you made about the parents of middle and upper class children coming in and, quote, taking over schools, um, I would actually argue that, yes, that you might see that as problematic, but it's much better if the parents are actually in there pushing for a higher standard of education than actually if they're completely out of the equation altogether. Thanks very much. Um, you have often pointed out the problems in freedom of choice, but you can actually still choose between state schools. It's not impossible. I had an option between um, choose between several state schools. The problem in equality is far much larger. Why should another person get a better education than me because their parents have more money? Why, I ask you. It's not fair. It's not creating an equal society. It only increases the class divide. That is where the public harm lies. Yes, there are problems in state schools, which is why they should be able to choose between many of them um, and not be confined to just one or two. And that will provide freedom. But the equality can only be achieved by abolishing private schools which have no place in the 21st century. Thank you. Just to follow up on what the previous two speakers have just said and to come back to what James said, 
Um, the way to switch off is to create a society where people don't believe that they have an equal chance. And that's what private schools do. Okay. Yeah, I'd just like to question. I mean, I'm not in favour of private schools, but I'm in the process of school choice at the moment. And I'm very much struck by the fact that it's inequality with the postcode system. I mean, there are, and you've mentioned this already, but parents are moving house. If you can afford it, you move house to where a good school is. The idea of choice, okay, we have choice. I can make six different choices for my child, but everything depends on how near we are the school. So I think this is a, an invidious system. And if I came up through the old grammar school, 11 plus system, and when I think of, of social mobility and equality, I begin to think that was perhaps a much better system. If you're a, if you're a boy in Tottenham in a bad area and you're bright, you've no chance of getting out because you're going to have to go to the local school, which is likely to be a rather poor school. That doesn't seem to me fair. Could I also ask the question, could you please, as chair, ask how many people in this audience, the Battle of Ideas audience, went to private school? Is it the same Makeup as Oxford and Cambridge? Okay, you know what? Let's ask. Hands up. <laughs> Hands up if you went to private school. Don't be shy. Okay. I, my rough estimate would say that's about 25, 30% of the audience, maybe. You know, basically, I think all people from public schools should be put up against a wall and shot. So, uh, <laughs> but I think there's probably enough hate in the room. There's enough hate in the room. So maybe I should, you know, maybe just pointy hats with a big D on or something. But, um, uh, and, and, and you know where, why we think that, you know, why people think that is because in your life, you know, always comes a point where you're in some kind of professional situation. I don't know, maybe at the offices of the Guardian. And you realize that everybody else went to public school. And uh, that's quite a demoralizing uh, experience. But, um, most of all, think, listening to what we said, I was surprised by that, that kind of anger, you know, that, that the private schools are utterly evil and the state school is completely failing uh, and despicable. And um, uh, I'm surprising, you know, the, the, I mean, that's, you know, how you have a debate, I suppose, you polarise a debate. You know, I know lots of people in North London uh, comprehensive or now called community schools have got a sister-in-law teachers at William Ellis I've got a daughter at Ackland Burley, uh, and uh, the people that teach the, at those schools are generally nice people, good people, um, who work hard uh, and uh, uh, deserve what they get. But I've got to say that it's just not as good as it should be. You know, there is a thing that you fit meet in the state sector that um, uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of excuses and a lot of uh, ex explanation of why we're not doing you know, of why it's never going to be quite as good. You know, the, uh, as somebody said to me when my daughter came home with her nose blooded, I didn't want to take her out of school. I was a bit cross. Um, uh, he said, you know, it's an inner city comprehensive. I'm thinking Tufnell Park isn't really inner city. But, um, uh, and what he was really saying to me is you couldn't expect your daughter not to get punched on the nose. And it's true. Lo logistically, it's impossible to exclude all possibilities. I thought that was a bit of a daft thing to say to somebody. Um, because he's really saying, don't expect so much. And I mean it too often. Too often, uh, not the teachers, uh, though the teachers sometimes repeat it, the, the climate, the culture in the schools is really saying, don't succeed. It's saying, that, or not don't succeed, or, or that there are many reasons why you shouldn't be expected to succeed. Maybe you didn't have breakfast this morning, or that kind of thing. And that 
is a wind-up, I have to say. That makes me think that the state sector is not as good as it should be. Um, I'm a state school teacher. Dave's a preschool teacher. But I think uh, the point you were making, Dave, is that knowledge is what matters. It's not about where we come from. So, I mean, as far as I can see, 7% are in the whatever they get to, or who cares? The point is what you're going to do about it for the rest and stop worrying about it and start doing the business. But that's going to be a long battle, isn't it? That's the point. Uh, and it, you, you seem to be saying you've got to be really putting people on the spot intellectually. Whether they want to go to Oxford or Cambridge or not, that's, that's their choice later on. But where do you see people doing this? Is it just in your school? Or are you saying that even in your school now, you've been open since September, you're still having to do it yourself to, to remind the young teachers that you've got that they've really got to push those students? Because that, that's how cultures of achievement get built, isn't it, in the long run? Someone has got to say, "This is going. I'm not. I'm going to be totally relentless." It's got to be like you know, if the battle of ideas every day, you know, in your school, and even though, you know, if it's a bad battle of ideas session, you say, "No, that was rubbish. We're going to do that again." How do you build that so that the the people at the bottom actually get to the top, and you never give up? Because that does seem to be to be the solution, but it's a very long solution, and it's not then caught in private against public. Uh, panelists, pick up uh, whatever you want. Who'd like to go first? I was just going to say that actually I thought I was such a relief to come here today and not to talk about the state of government education reforms and what's happened to state education over the past 20 years because that is actually a totally separate debate and I would agree with much of what I've heard but that wasn't what I came here today to do. It is a separate argument. I mean there are too many underachieving state schools, I don't dispute that. I think there are quite a lot of underachieving private schools as well that we never hear anything about. There is good and bad in every single sector. We've seen a free school this week, which had the worst Ofsted report I think I've ever read in my entire life. It was absolutely diabolical. So I think it's a more complex argument, and I think the reasons why some state schools aren't performing as well as they should do is because of the actions of successive governments, including this one, who do want to tell them how to teach. I mean, you talk about parents going in and turning schools into what they want them to be. The truth is, if you get involved in any state school today, you've got to turn it into what Michael Gove wants it to be, because the accountability measures drive absolutely everything in schools. But I do think that's a separate debate, debate and slightly irrelevant to the one we're having here today. I just want to come in here, Fiona. Okay, it is a separate debate, but it's also not a separate debate because what Dave on my right is saying and some people from the audience they're effectively defending private schools on the basis that they see state education is so crap that a lot of aspirational parents have got no choice but to jump ship and go towards perhaps private schools now Dave's free school is another take on that discussion so that's why it's difficult to get away from a debate which includes the state of state education if someone can get round that for me, I'm, I'm delighted to hear it. I, I think it's even more serious than that. I, I, I don't agree that these are separate discussions. Look, in 1945, the, the settlement of grammar schools in places like Northern Ireland um, had an enormous impact on what was largely a rural peasant population who did not have generation after generation of, of, of high-achieving educational background. They, in the course of, of the last 60 years, have been appropriated by the middle classes. So when, when the Minister for Education this week in Northern Ireland suggested precisely what I'm suggesting, that you need an exponential shift in resources to the most deprived schools, all the middle class burghers in Northern Ireland, um, you know, two generations ago, they, they were doing what the rest of us were doing, hoking potatoes, and now they're all middle class and living in South Belfast. And, and they're up in arms 
at the idea that there would be a redistribution of resources. Every strategy is an appropriation by those who have power over those that don't. It's not simply about private schools. I don't care where people send their, 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 their kids. That's their choice. What I care is about how the state levels the playing field. Brilliant. Uh, Martin, pick up anything from the floor you wish. Well, I'd like, if I may, to try and answer all four of the questions that are asked. If the lady at the back from Hills Road Sixth Form College... I'm afraid it's one of the biggest myths of the whole debate that if you took the 7% of children who are at present in independent schools and fed them back into the state sector, they would have any effect at all. As I said earlier, they would simply go into pre-colonised middle-class schools and, frankly, and to be really honest, uh, to places like Hills Road, uh, but lower down the scale. Those children are not going to change uh, bad state schools, and actually it would be a crime to ask them to do so, because that's not their job. To the gentleman who said it wasn't fair, the only answer is yes, it's not fair. But whose fault is it? Is it the fault of the public schools who have offered places to children at the same cost as it would cost the state to do it and to provide the extra money from voluntary funding, or is it the fault of the school? That offer was turned down. I'd be very interested to know how many people knew that offer was ever made. The state, the independent sector in the UK offered places to children at the same fee it cost the state to educate a child in a secondary school to find the extra money themselves, and this offer was turned down by the government of the day. The only time I'd like to get angry, I hope, this afternoon is to the gentleman, the third questioner, who said that the existence of independent school caused children in state schools to switch off because they thought they didn't have a chance. What an incredibly patronising insult to the hundreds of young children from the state schools who are quite the feistiest, best advert for our future I've ever met in my life. I happen to have been tutoring four students from state schools this week in order to get help get to places to Russell Group Universities. I have never met four more challenging, charming or powerful individuals in my life. They're all wonderful credit to themselves and I think they would be so angry at feeling that they had been um, accused of losing their ambition and their aspiration because of the existence of the independent sector. Actually, two of them at least were working a damn sight harder because, excuse my language, they wanted to beat those bastards from a school I won't name. Um, finally, sympathy to the gentleman whose daughter had his nose punched um, and indeed sympathy to all parents who would take a machete to those who... Uh, my only question would be whether his children would like to take a machete to him too. Certainly mine would, I think. Um, can I just add one, and this is totally anecdotal, but it does stand for so much, because in the final count, it comes down to your own children, your own experience, and the only instinct I trust in education is the parental instinct. I do not trust, with respect to my panellists, the educationalist instinct, only the parental. When my child was beaten up on a daily basis for several weeks, we went to complain to the headmaster of that school, and the answer was, well, you've got to expect it. It's only class. Dave. Um, the thing about this uh, debate about equality that gets me is that when you sort of bring in the equality argument, you argue for levelling down standards. Expect less, and then you can have equality. Sorry, I don't want to. Why should you? Why should anyone expect less? Expect more. 
And how do we get it? That's the problem. So, I mean, I just thought it was worth replying to James's point. Yes, not all state schools are a disaster. I am a state school. I don't think we're a disaster. I worked in one that was very good. I don't think I said that. No, that James, not you, oh, sorry, not you, oh, sorry, down here. Sorry, I know you didn't say that. Right, but but the point is, if you look at the system in London in its entirety, there are huge swathes which are an absolute disaster, where you can't get a decent education. Two boroughs can't produce a single doctor out of them. That's a problem because there's no one being educated. How many state school pupils do physics in Imperial College? One from London. It's just a complete and utter failure, right? So if you look at it in that sense, then there is obviously something wrong. And the way I would uh, say it, and I think it's been said a couple of times, is when you look uh, to what works, can you give pupils the ambition to succeed? You can, in your school that you were at. might have had a few advantages to do it, but can we do it in the state sector? I think you can. I think you can if you go about it the right way with the belief, as was pointed to at the back, that you stand for that constantly all the time. It's hard work, but you can do it. And that's what makes it worthwhile. If you give up on that, then just get out of the classroom. Hello, I'd like to ask James Conroy a question. Um, If it turned out that he was wrong about genetics determining the outcome of education a great deal, would it still be odious to say so? Thank you. Um, I was just going to ask, can we blame a whole system or do we have to look at schools individually within that system? I went to two state schools. One was a comprehensive and one was a grammar school. But both of them had very, very high standards, despite the fact, you know, they were two very different schools. And I was even given aspirations of going to somewhere like Cambridge and places like that. So are we dealing with a faulty system or are we dealing with individual faulty schools within the system? Um, I think... What we're touching on here really and is at the core of the, the issue is really what constitutes a good education. But I think if we were to go around the room, there would be an awful lot of views on that, and I want to just put forward mine. Um, and I think Dave, with what he was talking about, knowledge, and I think Martin in talking about expectations and believing that young people can do it are absolutely key. But I think it's also a shame that we've abandoned over the last 20 years, the idea that every school could be a good school. And I think there are all sorts of reasons why that's happened, but that has been abandoned utterly and completely. Now, what constitutes a good education, as far as I'm concerned, is what I would call a good liberal education. Actually, the sort of thing that public schools offer. Now, when you were saying, Martin, though, that you thought it would be a good idea for um, public schools to perhaps be involved in um, the state sector and, and, you know, giving a bit of advice and help or whatever. Well, actually, that is already happening. There are two very prominent public schools that have opened academies. All right? Now, let me tell you, though, that they're not offering... If they were serious about giving young people in those academies a good education, they would be giving them a good liberal education. But what they're doing is an entirely diluted, watered-down form of what is good for those children there and not an idea that is aspirational for everybody to have a good liberal education. It appears that the strongest argument um, against um, private education is that private education is a means by which the privileged members of society pass on those privileges to their children. 
So it's, it's an example of incredibly unequal life chances. And the, the people who argue for let's equalize life chances through the education system immediately get the moral high ground. And, and people end up saying, well, yeah, but it's not really practical. It's not really realistic. And they don't really seem to have much moral authority in their argument. So immediately, like Fiona, you, you seem to get the moral high ground in this argument. But I was thinking, well, doesn't education, an education system within an unequal society inevitably generate unequal life chances? If somebody does better in exams, even within a, a state school, they are going to be the ones that have better life chances. I mean, I went to a state school, and we knew that the kids who failed the GCSEs were going to get the poorly paid jobs. And we knew that the ones who did well and went to college were going to get the better paid jobs. So it's, isn't it completely absurd to imagine that we can create equal life chances through the education system? Thank you. Thank you. Just two very quick points. Um, firstly, I think a real confusion in this discussion and similar discussions like it is the um, conflation of schooling and education. And I think if we um, don't unpick what the difference is between school on the one hand and schooling and all the infrastructure and institutions that come with schooling and education on the other hand, then we, it's very difficult to make progress in this discussion. The way I'd see it is that education is about the academic content, the knowledge that's passed on to people. And I would be absolutely academically elitist and want the best knowledge to be passed on to children and really celebrate the academic elitism of the private sector. I think one problem is when we don't understand the difference between education and schooling, one thing that worries me about everybody really who's spoken so far on the panel is the bandying around of words like belief and aspiration in the absence of relating those words to knowledge and education because it's not the aspiration and the ambition in the abstract in a vacuum that will take kids from poor backgrounds, you can't just take kids from poor backgrounds, give them aspiration, ambition, belief, self-esteem, self-confidence, and automatically transform them into kids who are then going to be able to apply to Oxford and Cambridge. It's the knowledge that's transformative, and it's the relationship between those kids and the knowledge that will then provide the self-esteem, confidence, and belief. Uh, I just want to make three really quick points. Firstly, I don't buy into this argument about, you know, um, private gain, public pain. There's a perfectly logical reason why, why private schools have a charitable status. It's because the, the parents of people who go to the private schools, they pay money in taxes towards the state schools, but they don't drain the state schools of resources um, by sending their pupils to them. Uh, secondly, um, it was argued that it's wrong to appropriate the brightest pupils from state schools to private schools. We can't look at what's right and wrong in terms of the school, but the individual child. If there's a bright child and the private school has, um, is better able to draw the potential out of that child, then it is only right that they should so-called appropriate this child. I think it's wrong for you to say that it's the people who send their children to state schools are draining the resources just because they're using the service that's available to them. And I think you're on, you said that uh, private schools ask the government, but they should ask the parents because it's the parents whose children are going to school. For your information, most, like, let's say, um, people who work in the public sectors, people like nurses earn about £22,000 a year. If you're going to spend £18,000 on your children's education, how is that going to work out? Especially if hundreds of people want to send this ch child to a public school. And why should poor people have to work so hard to get to a position where someone with money can get so easily? Why should I be working to death just to get somewhere where someone who's middle class can get there very easily and we end up in the same place? And there's, there's no equality there. Bit of passion there.
yes. I think we're failing to recognise that so many independent schools are charities and they offer bursaries and heavily assisted places. I attend a private school. My mother grew up in Jamaica. She wasn't educated past primary school. My dad dropped out of school at 16. I attend one of the best schools in the country because they offered me the chance because they knew that people from poorer backgrounds can achieve with this ambition and with the knowledge they already have. I fail to see how that is at harm to the public. Surely it's worth it for those pupils who do have the knowledge for them to go there and achieve what they truly deserve. In the mid-60s, the the English um, CSE exam for the lowest stream, that's the the lowest, um, the people that weren't the least academic, um, the the D, the CSEDs, required them to do 12 pieces of coursework as a minimum. And they couldn't just cram that in in the last term. They had to do that consistently over two years. And I think that gives you an indication of just how far the expectations have fallen because today you'll find it, you'll find the brightest hard pushed in the state sector to do that much writing in a subject over two years. So there is definitely a really big problem of, of knowledge. Um, now, as often you, you, people say that and then they think, oh, there's knowledge there and then there's equality and compassion and wanting equality, you know, everyone to have equal chances over here as if they're not connected. There is a connection, but it's not the straightforward, easy one, whereas, oh, you know, we have our model society, so we'll make our school a model in the same way that we want society to be, and hey, presto, society will be equal. It doesn't work like that. That's just simplistic. And it's also patronising. I totally agree with your points, Martin, about, um, you know, the idea that somehow the middle... It's very self-flattering, the middle classes. Oh, you know, if we have the middle-class children in poor schools, somehow they'll magically solve everything, as if they're that great. You know, as if working class and ordinary and other, ch- other children don't have the capacity themselves. But the knowledge, you know, the knowledge is key because and if teachers don't have that subject knowledge, they're not going to be able to recontextualize and use the kind of techniques that are needed to make that knowledge accessible and amenable to, for everybody. That is the children who don't have the cultural capital. And that's the way they can begin to bridge the equality, not by trashing knowledge and not by sort of sniping at schools that do actually provide it, even if they're private. So the theme seems to be knowledge is the issue, inequality gap is not, not a bigger problem as the deficit in knowledge. I don't think it's just knowledge, it's what type of knowledge. So Dave has seen this and I've seen this, but too often we see children who are supposedly less academically minded too quickly get training. So they end up doing BTECs in accounting rather than being taught history or science or, or something like that. And actually what we're doing is it's there's a difference between training and education. And too quickly we are just saying, oh, these people aren't good enough. We're going to train them instead of educate them. And maybe that's the reason why private schools are so much better is because they're so um, intent on educating thoroughly and continually rather than just giving people training rather than actually giving them education and a knowledge base. Thank you. Martin. I just say that I think underpinning a lot of our debate is one absolutely overwhelmingly crucial issue. And it's the danger of confusing what must be a core inalienable human right, which is equality of opportunity, where every child in the UK should actually have the same opportunity. The same, it should have equality of opportunity, confusing that with merely giving each child the same opportunity. Because if you interpret it as each child can only have the same opportunity, we would have Wayne Rooney and Stephen Hawking following the same curriculum from the age of 13 onwards. 
And frankly, I don't think Stephen would have scored the goal the other night. And I don't think Wayne would have been contributing to cold fusion if that had been the case. We must actually not confuse equality of opportunity with simply offering each child the same opportunity. And the independent sector, for all its many sins, and by the way, I don't support those schemes you were talking about. I never have. I think they're ludicrously patronising, if the truth be known. But the one of the weaknesses, one of the strengths of the dear old independent sector, which occasionally is like the old auntie who drives you up the wall but you still love her, is that it does recognise the individuality of the child and will bend to the nature of the child far, far more than people imagine. Thanks, Martin. Yeah. I kind of think I disagree with you on this one, <laughs> but there you go. I, I think uh, we bend far, far too much to the supposed aptitude of children in schools uh, and therefore limit them before they even get started. Uh, and that's the danger. And that's why I didn't really uh, sort of railed against the idea of uh, genetics being brought into this or anything like that. Because any time that you bring in some kind of measurement like that that says, well, that's you, you go down that route, that's it. It's the end. Finished. And unfortunately, in the state sector, that uh, transformation from a sort of open system where you can just keep going and see how far you get to one where you're parceled off at uh, age 13 or 11 or whenever it is and told you're in that stream or you're vocationally minded or whatever is happening more and more. In fact, it's totally dominating uh, the way the system works now. Um, so I'm very much of the case that I don't mind uh, Wayne Rooney and... Uh, Stephen Hawkins, all doing my curriculum, uh, get to 16, then make a choice. Then if you've had enough, go and play football or whatever it is you want to do. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Fiona? Well, I think there are big questions that have been raised here about what education is for today, and I'd really like to spend more time discussing it, because I, I think it's a debate that affects every school, not just the independent sector and the state sector. And, you know, it's absolutely nonsensical to say that the independent sector is allowing children just to pursue these paths. I mean, I, I could name five children I know who've been asked to leave their independent schools before they reach the sixth form because they weren't going to get the grades that the school needed. Everybody is driven by this external accountability measures, and it, and it has perverse incentives in all schools, and that is a massive, massive problem. Until we can get away from that or, or find a way of assessing what children learn in school that doesn't provide perverse incentives, I think we've got to a big problem. Just one question really for Martin. I mean, we've had lots of talk about bursaries here. Nobody's ever been able to answer my question about how many bursaries go to children on free school meals in the independent sector. Only if you have a one sentence answer. 26.4% of children in independent schools through ethnic minorities, which is larger than the average for state sectors. Why that's a nonsense question. question. It doesn't answer the question. Me. Yeah, I'm trying to. Why there's no answer to that question is a significant number of those ethnic minorities will not allow their children to go on school meals because it actually is no, so sorry, acceptable. Martin, can I just say to you that free school meals are not determined by the parent that it's an automatic register of, for the child, dependent on whether they're on income support or not. Fiona. Why cannot the independent schools council, who peddle this myth that they're giving bursaries to very poor disadvantaged children, answer that one simple question? Because they give the figures on income, and could I please suggest, because otherwise it could be a day, that you actually go and see a few more independent schools. Uh, well, I okay. Nothing, only a bit of passion and strong disagreement. James? I'm going to go back to this question about genetics because I think it's much more important and corrosive than people think. Genetics is deeply implicated in the way people construct their self-identity. So 
if, if someone like Cummings is telling me that all the kids who get three A's at A-level, most of whom are, are middle class, they got them not because they were middle class, but they got them because they had a better genetic structure. Um, I want to say this is palpable nonsense. The point that Harry Burns makes is it is genetic in the sense that there are all kinds of neurochemical firings getting switched off for a variety of reasons, not least inconsistency in child-rearing and upbringing practices induced by drug addiction, alcohol addiction, which is disproportionately where I come from, affects um, intergenerationally unemployed people. These are not genetic problems, but they are being constructed as genetic problems by a certain cadre who want to um, reinforce the existence of privilege. Genetics, knowledge, equality of opportunity, what is education for? There's so much on the table and we've got so little time left. Uh, I'd just like to put that if you put those 7% of children into state schools, it's not about them fighting any battle, but it's about their parents knowing from when they are born that they will have to make sure that those schools are good for their children too. So it's about the taxes you're willing to pay to have those resources available so you can have smaller class sizes, better teacher training for everybody so that everybody can have the freedom to choose because they have that equal opportunity to choose because without that freedom is nonsense if it's just for those who can afford to access it. Thank you very much. Um, as, a, as a parent with a, a child in year six, I've just been round in the last month five um, schools in, in Buckinghamshire, three of them, th three of them um, regular schools, two of them, two of them grammar schools, and the difference between them is huge. And the, the discussion we need to have, be having is, is why it is, it is assumed that an academic education is okay for some children, but for, for some reason it, it no longer seems okay for the rest of the children. When did that change? You know, why, is, why is it that um, you know, these state schools seem to have given up on the idea that, uh, that everybody needs an academic ed education? Okay, thank you. So is it about knowledge and the lack of an academic education? Is it about material inequality? Which is a bit of both? Are we confusing the discussion? Uh, the, I, I disagree with this, this lady who just spoke over here, that the idea that you ban independent schools gives you more freedom of choice. Banning something gives you less choice, not more choice. What we need to do is raise the standards in state schools so that the independent sector becomes not a good option, that state education is free and good. And the idea that it's all based on school is, is, is nonsense. I went to a state school, not a great state school. I got punched in the face at school. We had books at home. We had the newspaper at home. We sat around the table. That's what makes the difference. Thank you very much. I agree with the last speaker. Um, <laughs> I think, well, for me personally, I was very much about my peers as well. Um, and I, I think if, if you, as a young person, have a group of peers with which you, you match and you can sort of make the most out of the situation and, and be encouraged to learn, I, I don't think this, the school where you go to matters that much. It's about the parents encouraging their children. Um, and and, and so, so it is about letting children from, from parents that don't encourage them meet with, with children that are being encouraged to read the newspaper, to go to events like this. I'm a little bit, I guess I'm confused by this discussion because on the one hand it seems that we are um, really expecting too much 
of education. Like in our schools, we're expecting um, our schooling to uh, solve social inequalities, uh, racial divisions, ethnic estrangements, you know, behaviour modifications, all kinds of social engineering that's expected through um, fair trade schemes, um, social emotional development schemes, all of this that is going on in my kids' schools, um, and it's unfortunately to the detriment of education, of actually academic um, knowledge that they aren't being given. And um, the teachers are really defensive. Sorry, the Thanks. teachers are really defensive. You don't want to, you know that the teachers are, do, are working hard, but there's a, there's a different culture that exists within the schools. Um, so a lot of people have mentioned, on the panel have mentioned inequality. Now, I'd say that doesn't inequality necessarily equal pub, like, public harm? Because we have a capitalist society and it's often unequal in many respects. So why is this such a key issue with independent schools? It mainly came out of the inclusive point that Fiona made earlier, and I don't necessarily agree that all independent schools are uninclusive, because mine really is very inclusive. Thank you. Look, speakers, you're going to hate me, but you've effectively got about a minute to just make your last point. We just can't deal with everything on the table. It's too vast, so finish off with whatever you want. Martin. Minute? Long, long time. Uh, firstly, to the 7%, this magic 7% of children and parents, yeah. Those 7% of parents are going to migrate to state schools. Who knows? Some of them might just go into civilised schools like the oratory. Uh, as for the final comment, it's very simple. Uh, the lady in the striped jumper who was confused, can I suggest that next time you ask her to send on this platform, not me? You're absolutely right. Thank you. Um, and then we'll go for Fiona. Well, you asked me earlier on about the, the solutions, which we haven't really talked about. I talked about funding state schools in the same way, and I talked about the selective element, which whatever you think about it is going to impact any system that's driven by accountability measures like performance tables. I don't think it's realistic to abolish state schools. I think they're very unfair, but I think that we could be using charitable status in a different way, and the obligations on those schools in return for their charitable status should be switched on their head. So I think we should be, have a, we should be able to see how many pupils they take that are generally disadvantaged, ensure that they taking the children who are most at risk of exclusion and the ones least likely to, to achieve and to do that in partnership with their local state schools, not sponsoring academies, because incidentally that has not been a very successful experiment thus far but in genuine partnership and be judged if they want to make a difference to society more generally and help unravel some of these inequalities. They should do it in partnership with their local state schools and not by just taking the children who are most likely to benefit their own performance tables or get into Oxford or Cambridge. Thanks, Fiona. Div? Um, I think the, the main thing is that we want to remove the barriers to a good education, the barriers to learning and to teaching. Uh, and that is my thing when I said about ambition. That's what I mean, is the ambition to actually teach pupils something worth knowing. Um, so it's not just in the abstract. I understand the point you're making, but I think what we really mean is actually give them a good education. And to put it simply, we just have to believe that we can teach children something worthwhile. And that is what's missing. It may sound silly, but that's just completely absent. So everything everybody else was saying that teachers are doing is a default sort of avoidance of the fact that we should actually be trying to teach them something worth knowing and that that is a job worth doing. Thank you, Dave. And last, James? 
the state sector suffers from far too much government interference. I agree entirely with those people who have said there's a problem about the nature of knowledge and what constitutes knowledge. Now, knowledge is a subtle, complex business. It's not just about knowing facts. That's where Michael Gove, I think, simply doesn't get it. Um, it's much more complicated than that. But it is not what lots of the unions think it is, which is that there's this high knowledge, which isn't real knowledge. This is just middle-class knowledge. And we really want real stuff for hewers of wood and drawers of water. This is palpable nonsense on stilts, but it has an extraordinary corrosive effect on the public sector, which hands yet further advantage to the private sector. Okay, round of applause for everyone. <laughs> <laughs>